the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Carrie Gress. She is the author of The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. And uh, in the Oregon portion of the program, we'll talk with Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life, on the legal challenge to Reproductive Health Equity Act that requires Oregon Right to Life, as every other organization in the state, uh, to um, pay for insurance covering abortion. We'll get into that in the latter part of today's program. Well, United Airlines uh, imposed and then lifted a nationwide ground stop after equipment outage apparently impacted the entire chain. Secretary of uh, Transportation Pete Buttigieg stated he is aware of the United's uh, ground stop, uh, which has now been lifted. Well, they asked the Federal Aviation Administration to ground all of its flights for around 40 minutes in the United States due to equipment failure. United made the request and the ground stop applied to all United and subsidiary flights, the FAA said. The airline lifted the ground stop before 2 p.m. Eastern time. We are experiencing a system-wide technology issue and are holding all aircraft at their departure uh, airports. Flights that are uh, already airborne are continuing to their destination as planned. United Airlines wrote in a message on social media before the order was lifted. Well, the Secretary of Transportation posted a message to social media stating he was aware of the situation. I'm aware of the nationwide ground stop at United Airlines due to IT issues. FAA is currently receiving more information about the cause and scope of the issue. The Department of Transportation will make sure United Airlines meets its obligations to affected passengers. Buttigieg directed those affected to a website where they can access resources on airlines, obligations to customers. The secretary wrote, if you are impacted, flightrights.gov has information about customer service commitments enforced by our department uh, when airline problems cause you to experience major delays or cancellations. Representative Swalwell uh, who said he was on a United flight uh, as the news broke, pledged to look into United's issues. Fans from both teams cheered as Joe Kennedy knelt in silent prayer for 10 seconds at the 50-yard line. It was the moment of culmination after a more than seven-year legal battle over prayer that ended with a victory for, well, Coach Kennedy at the Supreme Court. We finished the race, Coach Kennedy says, taking the knee in prayer and on the field following the Supreme Court victory. I used to run marathons quite a bit, and you never think you're going to get to the end. When you finally see the finish line, that's what tonight was, uh, Kennedy uh, said, uh, speaking to media outlets at the end of his first game back on the field Friday night after his legal battle. We finished the race, and we did it together, and there's nothing better than keeping the faith throughout that, he said, standing with his wife. I said thank you probably 30 times uh, when asked what he um, uh, prayed while kneeling after the game. I had no other words, he added. 
What do you say to the one who got me here to begin with? It was just, thank you. And I had nothing else to say to him. I've never been uh, great at prayers, but I was just so thankful for uh, being part of this. It was just awesome. Well, as you might recall, Kennedy lost his assistant football coaching job at Bremerton High School, about 30 miles west of Seattle in 2015, after he refused to break a covenant he made with God to take a knee in prayer at the 50-yard line after uh, football games. From the time he began the legal fight, all he uh, said he wanted was to coach the young men of Bremerton High School and give thanks to God afterward. A uh, desire that was fulfilled under the lights Friday night with a winning game for the Bremerton Knights. Well, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer subpoenaed Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and several Department of Homeland Security and Secret Service officials for documents and testimony related to the Secret Service's alleged tip-off of the Biden transition team regarding a planned Hunter Biden tax probe interview in 2020, while also accusing the agencies of obstructing a congressional investigation. Comer sent a uh, total of six subpoenas today, one directed to Secretary Mayorkas for documents and five for depositions, two to Secret Service officials and three to the Department of Homeland Security officials. The Department of Justice initiated the Biden family cover up and now DHS under the leadership of Secretary Mayorkas is complicit in it, Comer uh, said. Investigators were never able to interview Hunter Biden during the criminal investigation because Secret Service headquarters and the Biden transition team were tipped off about the planned interview. This is just one of many examples of the misconduct and politicization during the Department of Justice's investigation. Well, Comer said the Oversight Committee, along with the Judiciary and Ways and Means Committees, is seeking interviews with key witnesses, including employees at the Secret Service. The Department of Homeland Security is obstructing our investigation by muzzling the Secret Service from providing a response to Congress, he explained. The American people deserve transparency, not obstruction. We'll continue to follow the case as it develops. Well, former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio was sentenced today to 22 years in prison for his role in the January 6th uh, event at the U.S. Capitol. Tarrio was found guilty of seditious conspiracy by a jury in Washington, D.C., along with three other leaders of the Proud Boys. The others each were sentenced 15 and 18 years, respectively. The Department of Justice sought more than three decades for Tarrio, characterizing him as the ringleader of violent protesters. He was also ordered to 36 months of probation at the end of his sentence. Tarrio has repeatedly and publicly indicated that he has no regrets about what he helped make happen on January 6th, the prosecutors wrote. Otario spoke before the court, admitting his mistakes and apologized to members of law enforcement. He pled for leniency, describing January 6th as a national embarrassment and apologizing to the police officers who defended the Capitol and the lawmaker who fled in fear. He expressed remorse for letting down his family and vowed that he um, was done with politics. I am not a political zealot inflicting harm or Uh, Changing the results of the election was not my goal. He asked U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly, please show me mercy and that uh, and do not take my 40s from me. He wasn't in Washington at the time of the riot, but he had been arrested by federal authorities for a separate investigation two days prior. And he will serve 22 years in prison for his role. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, Carrie Gress, author of The End of Women or Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. That's coming up in the next segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Change 5 to the Manual of Military Decorations and Awards took effect on the 7th of August and hardly anyone noticed. That is until last week when the Office of the Secretary of Defense returned the draft citation for the end of tour award for none other than the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, four-star Army General Mark Milley. Because of change five, Milley's citation, well, it has to use the pronoun themselves instead of him. Now, grammatic, uh, grammatics aside, themselves instead of him. Well, page 49 of the revised manual includes draft language for awards such as this superior meritorious service distinguished themselves by superior meritorious service in a position of significant responsibility as from and it gives the position duty and assignment from date to date a month and year distinguished themselves. Okay. The revised rule found in the Department of Defense Manual, Volume 4, by the way, will apply to the most prestigious joint awards given by the Department of Defense, including the Defense Distinguished Service Medal, the Defense Superior Service Medal, the Defense Meritorious Service Medal, the Joint Service Commendation Medal, and Joint Service Achievement Medal, and the Joint Meritorious Unit Award. Well, aside from the fact that the use of the pronoun themselves is grammatically incorrect and just plain, well, stupid sounding. It's insulting to every serviceman and woman, every serviceman, every servicewoman in the armed forces. There are two sexes, if you hadn't noticed, male and female. When a member of the U.S. Armed Forces earns a military decoration or an award, he or she deserves to be recognized in that member's official citation by the pronoun he or she, not some woke, grammatically incorrect pronoun demanded by uh, administration apparatchik. Now, by the way, if you're somebody that wants a different pronoun, I suppose you could request that. But as a male and a female serving, this just seems off. Distinguished themselves by mer- superior meritorious service in a position of significant responsibility. We're going to be talking uh, with Carrie Gress in just a few minutes about the end of woman, how smashing the patriarchy has destroyed us. It's played a role in all of this. And then tomorrow uh, we'll be talking with Alex McFarland on the crime of misgendering. And the majority of at least um, one uh, young group believes that it should be a criminal act to misgender someone. Now, keep in mind that there are, what, 70 plus genders? What are the, what's the likelihood that you're going to get it wrong? Pretty high, it seems to me. Anyway, we'll talk about that tomorrow. Well, Liberty Council has sent a demand letter to Hayward Unified School District and its superintendent, Dr. Jason Ryman, for discriminating against Child Evangelism Fellowship by not allowing its Good News Club to meet at the Fairview Elementary School campus while allowing other clubs to meet. Well, since January of this year... Uh, They have requested three distinct times to resume holding the after-school club in an available classroom, but the school district has denied all three requests without explanation. Well, on the 21st of last month, Liberty Council sent the demand letter to the school district detailing the facts, the policies, and laws that do not permit the district to deny um, the uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship's use of school facilities. In the letter, Liberty Council advised the school district to respond by the 31st of August. That was a few days back to avoid further legal action. Well, the school district did not respond to Liberty Council's letter within the requested 10 day period, nor has it responded to this date. This is the 5th of September. 
Well, the school district previously allowed the um, Child Evangelism Fellowship to host a Good News Club at Fairview Elementary for numerous years before COVID caused the cancellation of all clubs in the spring of 2020. Well, after each of the school district's denials to resume the Good News Club, district officials failed to respond to repeated correspondence. Well, the district permits other similar clubs, including Girl Scouts, Girls on the Run, to meet directly after school on campus, but not this group. Well, in June of 2001, the U.S. Supreme Court in Good News Club versus Milford Central School, they ruled that public schools violate the First Amendment by not providing equal access and equal treatment to Christian clubs when the school has opened the forum to secular clubs, as in this case. Well, the Rhode Island uh, group is a Christian nonprofit organization, the subsidiary of the Child Evangelism Fellowship, an international nonprofit worldwide children's ministry. The Good News Clubs positively impact the lives of children and their families. They typically meet once per week immediately after school. They're led by trained and vetted local community leaders. The clubs provide religious and other teaching and activities to encourage learning, spiritual growth, service to others, as well as social, emotional character and leadership development. Good News Clubs don't charge any fee. They welcome children, regardless of their religious beliefs, uh, with written permission from their parents. There are currently more than 4,800 said clubs in public elementary and middle schools across the United States. Well, Liberty Council has represented approximately 200 of these clubs, these cases nationally, and has never lost a case involving Good News Clubs. They're not expected to lose this time around either. We'll try to follow that story. Well, Texas sent a 12th bus filled with migrants to Los Angeles, which arrived on Monday morning, nearly a week after city leaders voted to pursue legal action against the Lone Star State. The bus was carrying migrants, including 23 men, 20 women, 21 children, all from Colombia, Guatemala, Honduras, Mexico, Nicaragua, Russia and Venezuela. Council members requested the city attorney's office investigate whether Texas Governor Abbott has committed a crime through the program and whether the lawsuit is justified. We'll wait to hear that that response. Members of the mainstream media are in disbelief that President Biden and former President Trump are so close in the polls, despite Trump's mounting legal woes. ABC News' George Stephanopoulos seemed stunned on Sunday by a 2024 election poll showing Trump and Biden tied at 46 percent in a hypothetical rematch, calling the findings kind of shocking. That's a quote. During the segment on ABC's This Week, Stephanopoulos brought up a Wall Street Journal poll released over the weekend showing support among Trump and Biden split directly down the middle at 46 percent support each if the 2024 election were held today. But of course, it's not being held today. An attempt to bar Trump from the 2024 ballot gained some steam despite dubious and dangerous legal arguments, experts say. Some on the right and the left have claimed that former President Trump could be disqualified from appearing on the 24 presidential ballot. Several legal experts dismissed that theory as not uh, just um, implausible, but potentially dangerous. The legal theory goes that Trump could be blocked from the ballot point um, As Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the Disqualifications Clause bars individuals who have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against America or aided those engaged in such from holding office. 
Now, in this country, we also have the principle of innocent until proven guilty. But they see they seem to suggest that under the 14th Amendment, Section three, that wouldn't apply. The section also includes a provision allowing Congress to remove such disability via a vote of two thirds of each chamber. However, the argument for disqualifications clause doesn't hold water, according to multiple legal experts. George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley, he says there are good faith arguments in favor of this claim, but he views the theory as not simply dubious, but dangerous. The amendment was written to deal with those who engaged in an actual rebellion causing hundreds of thousands of deaths, Turley said. Advocates would extend the reference to insurrection or rebellion to include unsupported claims and challenges involving election fraud. Turley said he has long criticized Trump's January 6th speech, but he views the violence at the Capitol that day as a protest that became a riot. That definition would be crucial to applying the 14th Amendment, according to Turley, and Trump has not been found guilty of insurrection or incitement to rebellion. According to uh, these advocates, Trump can be barred from the ballot without any charge, let alone a conviction of insurrection or rebellion, Turley said. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is uh, signaling that he's serious about pushing through some form of regulatory framework for artificial intelligence when Congress is back from its August recess. Schumer is planning on kicking off a series of uh, bipartisan AI insight forums, he told the Senate Democrats in a letter on Friday morning, in a bid to get lawmakers caught up on the rapidly advancing technology. His first on September 13th is expected to feature tech leaders like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg and Sam Altman, among others. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, a conversation with Carrie Gress. She is the author of The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. The book is published by Regnery. She'll be with us in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, current day feminism feels like it became a shell of what it was originally designed to be, or at least that's what feminists intended. Instead of empowering women, it's erasing them. It has uh, or has feminism always been this radical? How exactly did we arrive at 21st century feminism? Well, my next guest, Dr. Carrie Gress, author of the new book, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us has the answers to uncover the truth, making you rethink everything you believed about the feminist movement. Nationally best-selling author of the Theology of Home series, she argues that 50 years of feminism has made the opposite of the intended effect. It granted primacy of place to the traditional, a traditionally male sphere of life while simultaneously devaluing the typical attributes, virtues, and strengths of women. Well, Dr. Carrie Gress is a a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a scholar at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. She's the founder and co-director or co-editor, rather, of the online women's magazine, Theology of Home, and the author of 10 books. Uh, She lives in Virginia with her husband and five children and joins us today to talk about this very timely and necessary book, The End of Woman. Dr. Gress, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. This is such a peculiar time that we find ourselves in, but should we be altogether surprised if we understand and have traced the um, the roots and the trajectory of feminism in our country? Should we be surprised? <laughs> no, unfortunately, we shouldn't. I think, uh, you know, the, the dice has been loaded and um, we're, we're really fu- fully seeing 
what feminism has been touting, um, at least for the last 50 years, but I, I argue in the book it's been a lot longer than that. So, yeah, it's um, this is really the culmination of what the feminist movement has been, the, you know, the direction in which it's been pointing us for a long time. Well, one of the questions that seems to puzzle those in authority is the question of what is a woman Uh, in my lifetime I never assumed that that would be considered a difficult question there are a lot of things to me that are difficult to answer that doesn't seem one of them why are people so afraid to say what is a woman and what does that tell us about the end game of feminism sure well I think that we have to look back at the 70s and see what a a lot of the rhetoric was and uh, there was really an effort at that point to, to just erase gender altogether and to get people to sort of reimagine themselves, reinvent themselves, um, you know, in any direction in which they wanted to go. And so that's really what we're seeing, you know, culminate in the trans movement is that people have this capacity to reinvent themselves any way that, that they like to. Um, and so this inability to define womanhood really goes back to that idea. And, it, it, you know, it's, it, it goes right along the political lines of, of trying not to offend trans people um, or anybody who feels like they, you know, weren't born in the right body or, you know, whatever. Um, but that seems to be really what's what's motivated is this all these years of trying to erase gender altogether and make women more like men, men more like women. And, and um, that, so that's really culminated in, in what we're seeing today. And of course, this um, incapacity to even define what woman is comes from that because we've so masculinized the culture and really haven't said very much that's good about women for, for a long time, which is sort of ironic because, of course, that's what feminism was supposed to do, was really empower us. Um, but it's really erased us. One of the things I think that many of us find shocking is that the voices of of uh, feminists have not been raised at the erasure of women. Uh, where yeah. are they and and do they just <laughs> feel assimilated? What, what, what happened? What's going on? Yeah, no, I think it's, again, part of this whole trajectory of trying to get women um, to believe that they can be whomever they want. I mean, these started early also with the, the philosophy of Simone de Beauvoir and um, this idea that, that we are can be unleashed and um, from our human nature. So it's, it's really part of the goal was for this to happen. So you see this infighting going on, of course, with women like J.K. Rowling, who's saying, you know, no, this is bad. <laughs> you can't erase women, um, it, it, you know, for the sake of men who feel more comfortable wearing a dress and high heels. And um, then there are others who say, well, no, this, this man is, you know, completely entitled to say that he's a woman despite his biology. Um, so it's, it's what happens with ideologies, because it, all of it has been really built on a lot of sand, um, is there's going to be infighting at the, at the end of it when things finally culminate. And that's really what we're living through at the moment. You showcase some pretty shocking testimonies in your book that we really haven't heard much about. Tell us a little bit about what's been, uh, what's been said on this subject. Yeah, well, you know, this book was shocking for me to research because I, like mm-hmm. so many other people, just thought that, you know, feminism maybe was hijacked by the second wave of feminism, but the first wave feminism was actually really a great thing. And I thought, you know, I just need to go back and do this research myself and check it out. And if there's some lovely things on women, I can use that. But I, I never dreamed I would find what I would find, what I found, which is that, you know, from the very beginning, uh, feminism was really focused on this idea of um collapsing society, getting rid of hierarchy, getting rid of patriarchy, getting rid of anything that was older in, in the world. And then, um, so that was one piece that ended up, of course, becoming this notion of smashing the patriarchy. 
Um, you also have the occult was incredibly involved in the, the feminist movement. Uh, most people have no idea that Elizabeth Cady Stanton was very involved in seances and working with mediums. Um, and then um, the third piece was really free love was another element that that um, was part of it that was, you know, getting rid of monogamy, but also trying to get rid of the, the nuclear family. Um, so all three of these pieces really were working together from, you know, the 1800s onwards. I think we, we think of that era as a very puritanical era, but um, there was a lot of really awful stuff going on. And we can see that the, the pattern of what started with them came down to us and really just was exacerbated in the second wave with, um, of course, the addition of Marxism to the movement. The patriarchy has been and continues to be blamed for much of the ills that women have experienced. But in your book, you look at how women are harming women in this effort mm-hmm. to um, equalize with men or to become more like them, to defeminize themselves. Talk a bit about that. Yeah, well, I think that's the, the remarkable thing is just to look at what what are the statistics telling us about women? Are women getting happier? And of course, we're not really seeing any evidence of that. In fact, it's going the opposite direction. And that's those are the details that are not being highlighted. Um, but what's happened is, of course, we're told things like women can have it all, that um, women are better than men. Uh, you know, the, the movement itself actually really focused and, and put on a pedestal the nature of lesbian relationships. and But at the same time, felt all this resentment against men, um, which, of course, now we're seeing a lot of the fallout from that of um, men resenting women. And, and um, it really became sort of this power struggle. So what's been created, of course, is this you know massive war between the sexes. And women seem to be holding all the cards because men are afraid to speak up and say very much about this. And that's been one of the refreshing um, aspects of this book that I, I didn't really expect was to see how many men really like this book and are finding, you know, hope in being able to talk about it in a way that that is constructive and moving forward instead of feeling like they don't they just don't know how to act at all in light of of the feminist movement. So again, what what the end game has been is to create this destruction and this um, resentment between the sexes and again furthering that destruction of the the nuclear family. You write that um, the <clears throat> excuse me, what the well ro- red robed and well healed women don't understand is that try as they may to rewrite the fairy tale, those agitating for something other than womanhood will never be the protagonists. Envy cannot make a hero, only an oppressor. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, well, I think what we've seen is that um, that much of this movement is based on envy, on women wanting to be like men and have the things that men had. In fact, that's, you know, the earliest question that the feminists were asking was, how do we make women more like men, not how do we help women as women, um, because they saw that men had a better life. And so fundamentally, it really is about envy. And I think so many of us from the, you know, our earliest years were told that, you know, we could be like men, we could compete with men, but we were never really told what was good about being a girl. You know, we haven't said anything good about being a girl for 50 years. And so we see this this kind of shift that's been going on in the culture where we are promoting this new sort of fairy tale of what women are like and can live without men. Um, certainly highlighted in the Barbie movie that's obviously been so successful. Um, we see again this, you know, squat smash, smashing of the patriarchy with the um, women sort of triumphing. And once women are in control, then everything goes back to order and, and peace and calm. Um, so those, this is kind of the new fairy tale that, that we're living with. And I think that that's um, obviously a problem because it, it isn't built on something that can actually build anything. It's only built on envy, which is always a tearing down of other people. 
We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. One of the things you point out in the book is that the power of the new feminist fairy tale is highly compelling, but it comes at a cost. We'll talk a bit about that when we return. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Dr. Carrie Gress, author of The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Carrie Gress. She's a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a scholar at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. We're talking about her book, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. Now, just before the break, I was talking about the cost of um, the out, outgrow of feminism and the fairy tale that often accompanies it. It sounds highly compelling, but uh, there is a downside. Can you talk a little bit about the cost? And should we be flattered when men increasingly want to be women, even though it uh, deprives women of opportunities that were once reserved solely for them? Yeah, well, I think this, the most significant cost is just what it's really cost us in terms of relationships and, and our lives. Um, the the myth has really been that we can be independent women, that, you know, our husbands are an obstacle to our happiness, our children are an obstacle to our happiness. And we just see that this is, is wreaking havoc all over, the, you know, the mental health. We're seeing depression and suicide and substance abuse, all of these kinds of things, um, because it's very hard to be an independent woman without any family. And I think, sadly, a lot of women are realizing this, you know, later in life when I get to a stage where, They've they've done everything the feminists have told them to do. And, you know, I hear these stories all the time about women who say, this is not what I expected my life to be like, to be, you know, in in this kind of isolation. Um, So it absolutely comes at a cost. I think we can also see that just the the abortion numbers. There are more abortions that happen worldwide than people that die from every other fatality, you know, cause of fatality combined. Um, So these are huge numbers. And this is all driven by this ideology that tells us children are an obstacle to your happiness. But we know that women are really made for relationships. And that's, you know, probably the most tragic piece is that that's what's really being taken away from us on so many levels. And of course, the trans layer, you know, is just a whole other layer um, because of the fact that it's actually biologically changing women um, in ways that we we haven't figured out how to reverse um, very well. And the technology is, uh, you know, is can be devastating. We're seeing this in the detransitioners. Um, so do I think that, that um, you know, we should be flattered that men want to become like women? No, I don't think that's really the the goal. I think mm-hmm. that there's, there's something else at work that people are um, focused on, and it's a kind of destruction or delusion. You know, we see this especially with the sort of drag queen story hour. I think there's this effort to destroy innocence and children and to create all kinds of confusion, which ultimately, you know, consolidates power in areas that we don't want the power to be consolidated. One of the things that you write about are girls who are grasping at either testosterone or trans identity as a panacea that will abate their suffering. There are challenges to being a girl who is becoming a woman and becoming a man, they're they're told and encouraged to believe, uh, will save them from the awkwardness of that that, uh, beautiful transition that every girl, every woman goes through to become what she was intended to be. Yeah. Yeah, this is really the, the tragedy because it's uh, the trans movement is preying on young girls who are at that awkward stage. I mean, so many of us went through it um, very awkwardly. And, um, you know, these are girls that fit a profile. Many of them are not very popular. Or they don't get a lot of attention. And suddenly they announce that they're trans or they're taking testosterone and they have all this attention from really all over the country, including even our president has commented about it. 
Um, so that, that that is changing things for them in a way that just is sort of feeding the problem rather than saying, what's what's really the root cause here? Um, but that the, the issue is not that these girls want to become boys. They just really want to be non-women. And this is a point that Abigail Schreier mm-hmm. has made in her book, Irreparable Harm. Um, she talks about this extensively. You know, they don't want to be women. And you, you can't fault them for that because we haven't really said anything good about being a woman for about 50 years. And motherhood is certainly something that has become like, you know, getting a driver's license you can do or you can not do. Um, when, in fact, I, th- I think the, the missing piece to all this is the recognition that all women whether we're biologically mothers, psychologically or spiritually, all of us are called to a kind of motherhood as we grow older and mature and to, to tend to others. Um, and that that's really seems to be part of the missing piece of why we can't define what a woman is, because we've cordoned that off to be something that's only for a select few number of women and not for, for all of us and really giving us a sense of why we go through that process at adolescence altogether. In this this embrace of feminism, we have and I'm I'm generalizing. uh, We have jettisoned the notion of a happy family where there's a husband and children that are not um, envied or jettisoned or uh, or avoided altogether. Again, the the cost of embracing a, a worldview in which being a woman in all of its fullness and beauty is rejected in favor of something else, whether that's just not being a woman or being masculinized. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And that, again, this is the, the, the pedestal that the masculine has been put on. And this goal for women was to make them like women. Um, and I think once people start seeing that kind of overarching ideal of what feminism was doing, it's much easier to really understand what's happening you know, now in our lives on a particular level and just across the nation. You point out that the biggest issue we face when trying to restore sanity to this situation is that there's a divide between those with faith and those without. I suppose that shouldn't be altogether surprising, but talk a little bit about the role that faith plays in uh, women understanding and appreciating who they were designed and created to be, as opposed to those who don't have that understanding. Yeah, well, I when I was researching this book, I read Wicker Chambers' great book, Witness, and um, in it he talks a lot about how Marxists really have this idea that um, you know they're worshiping they're worshiping worshiping themselves or they're worshiping Satan that they may not realize it, but it's that idea of grasping at things that are really created by God. You know, male and female, He created them. We know that um, that's the, the the biblical Christian Judeo Christian worldview, and all of this is trying to really destroy that. Even from the earliest stages, you have someone like Percy Shelley, who was an English poet that was very influential in the feminist movement. He tried to rewrite Genesis so that Eve, you know, wasn't temptress. She, she and Adam didn't fall, but in fact, she had an, an opportunity. The serpent gave her some, some a particular kind of wisdom. Um, so it, it absolutely is what we're seeing is this manifestation of, of this world's second oldest religion of we can do whatever we want. We will not serve. We will not see things in, in light of God's creation and goodness. But we will see things as as we want them to be, um, and more and more that's that's all we're seeing is just this everything is directed by the will um, for you know whims and and desires. You make the point that feminism has become the identifying narrative of Western women. Is this a phenomenon we're seeing in other parts of the globe as well? Is it simply Western women, or is this uh, penetrating other cultures as well? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly penetrated all over. I mean, you can see it all over in in Asia and Africa and and so on. I mean, part of it is just because of the 
the emphasis on abortion um, and that, again, that breaking of that most fundamental relationship between, um, you know, mother and child. And th- that's really, I-, I think, the real tragedy of it is that we're exporting this. It's, it's happening through, you know, here in the United States, it's very hard to navigate outside of this narrative. You, you've got it controlled by politics, Hollywood, daytime TV, fashion magazines, publishing, academia, all all of these efforts are really giving us sort of a monoculture, this sense of one way that women are, are supposed to live. Um, and sadly, this is taking over, taking you know root in other places. Um, but the, the hard part is that we don't have voices that are saying, you know, maybe this is actually not really very good for us. Um, and I think this is happening more and more in certain, certain ways. You know, I'm, I'm meeting younger women who are beginning to question it. And um, so it's interesting to see, you know, the launch again of, of the Barbie movie, because it is just really instilling those, you know, these old feminist ideas, but kind of with a new audience, using some nostalgia for those of us who are older and, and played with Barbie when we were younger, um, or making it really appealing and attractive by, you know, just the clothing and the pink and all of it. So it, it's, they, they're very effective in sort of um, promoting this narrative by getting around our reason and using these things that really appeal to our emotions. Um, even those tender moments in, in Barbie, I know women really appreciated those. Um, but sadly, we, we don't really see what's the underlying ideology that's being slipped through using all of these sort of, um, you know, smoke and mirrors, really. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Carrie Gress. She's the author of The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. And while she does help us uh, understand uh, the history and traces how we got to where we are today here in the 21st century after the uh, sexual revolution began in the 60s. She also focuses on the way home. We're going to take a break for news and traffic here at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk about where do we go from here? What can we do? So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, nationally best-selling author of the Theology of Home series, Dr. Carrie Gress, is the author of the new book, The End of Wim- Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. Nationally uh, uh, recognized, she argues that 50 years of feminism has had the opposite of the intended effect. It's granted uh, primacy of place to the traditional male sphere of life while simultaneously devaluing the typical attributes, virtues, and strengths of women. Feminism didn't uh, uh, make a radical turn in the 60s. It has radical roots that have fully bloomed in the 21st century. We're talking about her book, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. I appreciate that you don't just trace the... uh, the impact that feminism has had, how it began and how we got here. But you also have a section of the book on the way home and restoration. How do we get from where we are today that appears to be uh, held by the majority uh, to where we need to be when we embrace womanhood again and appreciate who we are physically, biologically and in every other way? Yeah, well, I think that's a, the, the most important question. I mean, the biggest thing is really for, for women to realize just how much we've been brainwashed and indoctrinated into thinking in ways that actually work against us. So that, that's probably the first place to start. But I think the, the important thing is just to recognize the beauty uh, that women have and the kind of wonder that we can elicit when we're actually made to, to behave in a way that, that 
you know, God created us for. We, we currently have sort of two slots that we can fall into. One is over-sexualized and the other one is really narcissistic. And neither one of those, of course, is, is going to lead to any kind of happiness. We know our, our ultimate happiness comes when we're serving others. And, of course, these things have been, you know, this desire to serve others has been denigrated as, um, you know, codependency or, you know, whatnot. And, of course, um, it, you know, obviously codependency can happen, but that's largely what most women are, are not doing. Um, and, you know, in writing this book, it was fun to actually look back and see sort of obviously both when in, in Scripture, but also in ancient mythology, how did people understand women? And um, women were really understood. You know, there's a lot of metaphors for them, things like rivers and um, the ocean and, you know, ship, ships. This is why a ship is always called a she. Uh, you can see it in the Romance languages with their um, use of, of um, different masculine and feminine articles. Um, so it was really interesting to start seeing, you know, what are these patterns? And, and one of them is this capacity to carry things, of course. Um, but another one is even like the idea of an oven. You know, you, you, you put something into an oven and it comes out hopefully much better than when you put it in once it's cooked. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the beautiful things that, that women do is just our capacity to improve things. That's sort of what we're, we're tasked with um, through our love and care and nurturing and kind of being dialed into the needs of those around us, whether it's our home or the workplace or um, in schools and whatnot. So um, I, I think it's just really a matter of getting back into touch with what it means to be a woman, finding kind of this new grammar for talking about women, because one of the things that, that feminism has done is it's not only defined its position, but it's also defined what it thinks is the opposite position, which is those of us that disagree with it. And it's really made us look like we're, you know, doormats or, or handmaids, like in the handmaid tale women that they tout out, you know, in their red bonnets and robes. So it's a matter of trying to fight both of those, you know, two misunderstandings of, of womanhood and come up with something that really captures who we are in an authentic and, and beautiful way. Do we have to first convince ourselves? Have we been so indoctrinated that we no longer appreciate the, the fullness and the beauty of who and what we are uh, created by God for incredible things? Do we have to begin by just convincing ourselves uh, anew that um, there is worth in precisely who we already are without having to try to masculinize who we are? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's the the very first step is just seeing the ways in which we've we've been confused and and really our thoughts have been distorted about what it means what womanhood really is. Um, absolutely, that's you know getting back to some very very fundamental ideas of um, basic you know biology and psychology and, and um, spirituality as well. Now, some might suggest that what you're describing means that women have to go back to the. Uh, to the kitchen. They are no longer uh, really designed to be or should be in uh, places of leadership or in the workplace. Um, what does it mean to um, to restore what's been lost? Because we don't want to yeah. go back to some areas where women have been uh, taken advantage of and oppressed. On the other hand, we don't want to so redefine who we are that we're no longer uh, what we're designed and uh, intended to be. Yeah, I think that's a huge and important question. Um, and this is one of the ways that feminism has really captured us and our imaginations is by the sense of guilt. Like, you know, if you deny this, then you really want to go back to something kind of slavery. And of course, um, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. And, you know, I have an advanced degree. I work outside the home. These are, I have five children. So I, I'm not trying to say the things that I'm I'm not doing. I think um, the, the big reality is that technology has changed 
tremendously. Um, and we can see, you know, I push a button to get my clothes washed, and whereas women 100 years ago spent hours mm-hmm. on their clothing throughout the day. And I think we can't discount what has changed there. I think we also have seen significant changes in the way that people view women and that, you know, women have, have shown themselves to be, you know, equal in so many areas to, to men. Of course, you know, that's a whole other discussion because the, the biological is something that's very different. Um, but I, I think that that's if, if we can start moving forward, being free from feeling like, oh, we have to feel guilty and be enslaved to this. Otherwise, we're going back to something horrible um, that that's a way forward, um, because that, that's really probably just not going to happen, given, again, the changes in society, the changes in, in culture and more most importantly, the changes in technology um, have just freed up women significantly to have a kind of freedom that you know, historically has never been been seen before because all the things that women normally did to keep people alive and fed and clean um, can now be done with so much more ease. So that, yeah, this is absolutely not part of, of my book or what I'm suggesting in, in this this effort. And I can affirm that that's, that's the case. Are you optimistic that women are fed up with or beginning to recognize that we haven't uh, necessarily been told the truth and are rethinking um, our place in in life and our value in the culture and in the world. Yeah, you know, I'm certainly seeing it, and a lot of young women, in particular, um, tragically, I'm hearing about it from older women who are, you know, waking up to it and and realizing that this is not where they wanted to be. Um, so I, I'm seeing a lot of hope, and I'm also seeing a lot of hope in, um, you know, men seeing a new kind of compassion that they they need to feel instead of resentment towards women, starting to understand through this book in particular, that women have been indoctrinated in such a way that they didn't, we, we didn't actively choose to be narcissists or, or resentful or envious, that these things have kind of been imposed upon us. And I think starting from that place is going to really start he- moving into healing instead of creating further uh, further divide in, in the war between the sexes. Um, so, yeah, I think we have, we've got a lot of room for hope, but we certainly have a long way to go, that's for sure. Yeah, we certainly do. Well, Dr. Gress, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Again, Dr. Gress is the author of The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. It's an eye-opening account of feminist ideologies throughout history. The title exposes the built-up um, to current-day feminism, which doesn't empower women. It erases them. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Texas is pushing back against the Biden administration after they say the government's push to classify a lizard as an endangered species could have a devastating impact on the state's oil and gas industry. Well, in a recent letter to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Texas General Land Office Commissioner Don Buckingham wrote that the classification of the dunes sagebrush lizard as an endangered species could have a crippling impact on the oil and gas industry. What a coincidence. Well, although the proposed habitat of the DSL is not well or clearly defined, it appears to be located primarily in the uh, Permian Basin of far west Texas, which is the... um, beating heart of Texas and the country's oil and gas industry, and therefore one of the primary sources of revenue for education in Texas by way of the schools fund and the PUF, the letter states. The letter also states that listing the DSL will surely bring with it a designation of critical habitat, as well as rules strictly limiting or even prohibiting surface activities that are necessary for oil and gas exploration and production. 
Again, what a coincidence. Several East Palestine residents spoke out against the recent answer the president gave for having not yet visited the site of a massive train derailment that occurred in East Palestine, Ohio, in February. Local residents spoke about the struggles they've endured since the disaster that spewed toxic chemicals and caused health and environmental concerns. They also grilled Biden for claiming he had to put off visiting the area due to his busy schedule. And while in Florida on Saturday surveying the damage from Hurricane Adalia, the president told the press, I haven't had the occasion to go to East Palestine. There's a lot going on here and I just haven't been able to break. Uh, Poking holes in the president's excuse, one resident said, that he's spent much of his presidency on vacation, about 40 percent of the time, going on to say, I still have yet to take my kids into East Palestine. I'm still fearful of what it's going to cause. She added that most of the people she knows in the area have ended up sick and mentioned she's been staying in a hotel near the town since the derailment. Washington Post, New York Times, they've stopped short of declaring the president's fictional tales as lies. The president has raised eyebrows in recent weeks for telling an embellished story of the survivors of the Maui, or rather to the survivors of the Maui wildfires, and while addressing Hurricane Idalia in an attempt to relate to people's struggles. But news outlets have found creative ways to refer to the president's questionable stories and even outright fabrications. This story, as he told it, entails what he suggests was a near-catastrophic fire that occurred at his home in 2004 due to a lightning strike, repeatedly claiming he almost lost his wife, his cat, and his 67 Corvette in the event. Reports at the time, however, revealed that the fire was contained to only the kitchen. This caught the attention of the Washington Post fact-checker Glenn Kessler, who wrote a story Thursday with a headline, Biden loves to retell certain stories, some aren't credible. Well, his propensity to exaggerate or embellish tales about his life led to doubts about his truthfulness. Contemporary news reports on the house fire do not match his telling of it, fanning criticism that he had uh, lied to vulnerable um, survivors of the fire in Maui. Sometimes the stories turn out to be largely true, but others fall short. As President Biden has continued a tradition of embellishing his personal tales in ways that cannot be verified or are directly refuted by contemporary accounts. Well, they did fall short of actually referring to the prevarications as, well, prevarications, um, a move that the managing editor for um, the Post Pinocchio's Curtis Hauk of the conservative media watchdog Newsbusters called predictable. Hmm. Well, Mexico is mocking the United States immigration efforts by placing a slab of the Berlin Wall on the U.S. border. The Mexican government placed a piece of the Berlin Wall just a stone's throw from the U.S.-Mexico border in Tijuana, sending a clear message to border security advocates in the U.S. Tijuana mayor um, and former Mexican foreign secretary, they installed the shard of the Soviet wall during a ceremony last month. A plaque near its base written by uh, one of the uh, pair reads, May this be a lesson to build a society that knocks down walls and builds bridges. Well, the message laden uh, move comes as the U.S. continues to expand its uh, barriers across the nearly 2,000 miles of territory dividing the U.S. and Mexico. Unlike U.S. Uh, the U.S. border, however, the Berlin Wall was originally installed by an occupying power to uh, divide the nation against itself. So not exactly the same thing. Turkish President Erdogan uh, met with Russian President Vladimir Putin to discuss a new grain deal. This in view of the Ukraine grain deal. Well, Turkish President Erdogan said 
After talks with the Russian president on Monday that it would soon be possible to revive the grain deal that the United Nations says helped to ease the food crisis by getting Ukrainian grain to market. Russia quit the deal in July, a year after it was brokered by the United Nations and Turkey, complaining that its uh, own food and fertilizer exports faced serious obstacles. Erdogan, who previously played a significant role in convincing Putin to stick with the deal, and the United Nations are both trying to get Putin to return to the deal. Erdogan says that uh, Russia's expectations were well known to all and that these shortcomings should be eliminated. Added that Turkey and the United Nations had worked on a new package of suggestions to ease Russia's concerns. Well, a new poll reveals that Donald Trump is at 59 percent among the first choice candidates. The Wall Street Journal reports that he has expanded his dominating lead for the Republican presidential nomination as GOP primary voters overwhelmingly see his four criminal prosecutions as lacking merit. And about half say the indictments fuel their support for him. The new survey finds that what was once a two man race for the nomination has collapsed into a lopsided contest in which Trump for now has no formidable challenger. Well, after Hurricane Adalia slammed into Florida last week, reports of electric vehicles catching fire after coming into contact with floodwaters began to emerge. At least two Tesla vehicles, one in Pinellas Park and another in Palm Harbor, ignited after being contaminated by salt water from storm surge. Electric vehicles owners were advised to move any car that came in, uh, into recent contact with salt water to immediately relocate the uh, vehicle, specifically if it was parked in a garage. Some electric vehicles in Florida were bursting into flames after coming into contact. Uh, residual salt water particles left behind on flood, uh, flooded batteries and battery components can conduct electricity, resulting in short circuits and eventual fires. Safety officials are urging EV owners with vehicles that flooded uh, to take action now as fires can ignite weeks after flooding. And the Biden administration quietly reversed uh, the Trump era rule banning the transport of fossil fuels by train. Jill Biden uh, tested positive for COVID-19 for a second time. And North Korea's Kim Jong-un will meet Russian President uh, Putin in Russia for arms talks. And a federal judge has blocked a uh, Texas law that would require pornographic websites to verify users' ages and issue health warnings. Judge David Ezra, the Reagan appointee on Thursday, ruled House Bill 1181 unconstitutional and issued a preliminary injunction against it, saying the law goes far beyond the interest of protecting minors. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. For those of you listening in our Seattle market, have a great evening. For those in Portland, Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life, on the legal challenge to the Reproductive Health Equity Act coming up on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, earlier today, Oregon Right to Life held a press conference to announce a legal challenge to the Reproductive Health Equity Act. It was House Bill 3391 in 2017. Well, the application of the abortion insurance mandate to Oregon Right to Life violates its rights to religious liberty. Multiple administrative agencies have ignored Oregon Right to Life's request for relief, and consequently, they're looking to the courts to honor its constitutional right. Here to talk with us about that is Lois Anderson. She is executive director of Oregon Right to Life. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Georgine. Thank you for having me on. This is such an important issue. House Bill 3391 became law in 2017. Why now? 
Well, we have been working since 2017 um, to determine what, you know, the best course of action was. And one of the things we did need to do was to seek administrative relief. Um, We testified during the legislative session that um, the bill would violate our uh, our constitutional freedoms. Um, And then we pursued administrative relief through the state and through the federal government. Um, There also have been some um, circuit court cases around the country. Um, The one that people may um, recognize the most is the Hobby Lobby case. Um, So there also is some additional case law in the federal circuit court level and the Supreme Court level that um, shows us that we have a path to ask for relief from this mandate. Um, And we did file in federal court specifically because um, we believe that it's our our federally guaranteed uh, rights to freedom of religion through the First Amendment that are being violated by the mandate. And that's what we're requesting relief from. So this isn't the beginning of a process. This is the next step in what has been a rather lengthy process. Well, I don't want to assume that all of our listeners are familiar with this mandate here in the state of Oregon that would require Oregon Right to Life. And for that matter, a lot of other organizations, every other organization, unless you have an exemption to cover abortion, um, in the health care insurance for their employees or associates, whatever the organization might be. Is that a fair characterization? But, yeah, the, the mandate is on is on the insurance companies themselves as well as on the employers. So if you're an insurance company and you're offering an employee benefit policy in Oregon, you're required to cover not just cover abortion, but with no copay and with no um, uh, um, effect on your um, the your limits, uh, mm-hmm. you know your your uh, the limits of spending. There there is one little carve out that was that was put in, which is Providence, which is your listeners may know that Providence is affiliated as a Catholic organization, is affiliated um, with the Catholic Church, and um, but even then the there they are they are even limited in what they can offer and so it's essentially saying you pro life organization we're mandating you um uh with maybe this one little tiny carve out uh to provide insurance that pays for abortion it's just a very simple violation i think anybody understands on its face it's just a very simple violation of our our first amendment liberties um and we're not a church. We're not a religious organization that primarily employs and serves people that agree with us religiously. We don't even agree with each other on doctrine and and religion, but we are an organization that holds um, deeply moral and religious values. And so there's no there's no allowance for us in this law, and that is a violation of the Constitution. And, and we want to get our get our liberties back. Absolutely. Well, again, this has been an ongoing process that for some of us, we're just learning that, you know, this latest step in this very long uh, process. Um, James Bopp, Jr. of the Bopp Law Firm, is working with you and representing you in this case. What happens next? You announced and filed a lawsuit uh, today. What happens next? Well, there's a lot of of lawyers filing things. Um, There's there's uh, we think that what will be next is there 
there will be some kind of oral argument in front of the judge, but federal judges have a lot of um, have a lot of leeway. So we will we will wait to hear from the court and we will respond and do our best and um, to to represent our case. As I mentioned, uh, the Bop Law Firm is representing you as she providing counsel. Uh, and James Bop Jr. says this: forcing pro-life Oregon right to life to fund abortion insurance is outrageous. I think we can all agree on that. Fortunately, yeah. the First Amendment protects Oregon right to life, and that's what you are seeking to have affirmed, that the First Amendment uh, is the ground upon which you can request an exemption from this or this mandate um, that has been imposed here in Oregon and other parts of the country as well. How optimistic are you in this process? Well, our team seems very optimistic. Uh, for us, I think we've talked about this before, Georgine, is for Oregon Right to Life, we're looking at, you know, what's the next thing that we need to do uh, to contend for the unborn? And this may seem like a, you know, well, it's health insurance, but I think everybody understands how powerful it is mm-hmm. um, and how uh, to to have the state say, Abortion is so important that we're requiring um, uh, insurance policies to cover it and to cover it with no with no copay. And so um, we we think that it's a very good case. And we think that most people understand very clearly that that the government um, asking you to violate your deeply held religious or moral values is wrong. And so I think. I think that we do have some hope that we will get relief from the court. Yeah, what the state is requiring is exceptional coverage. You don't get this for most anything else. Now, there was a case that the Supreme Court heard, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. How likely is that to um, uh, inspire a federal court to say, yeah, this is the right thing to do? Is that a significant case in this uh, process, do you expect? That, that's what our legal team believes. Um, they think there's elements of that of that decision in particular that apply here. For uh, listeners who want to follow this case or who want to support Oregon Right to Life, what's the best way for them to uh, to keep up with what you all are doing? Well, the best way is just sign up for our email um, list on our website. There's a there's a place if you go to ortl.org. There's a spot where you can enter your email address and. We do try really hard to only send out one email a week um, unless there's something really important happening. That really is the best way. Um, and then also we'll have updates on our website if we have press releases. We post them there. Well, I'm on that list and I appreciate the content. It's always relevant. It's always timely. And you don't abuse that <laughs> that access that you have. So I, I do appreciate that. Oregon Right to Life is doing a lot of stuff. You've got the Education Foundation. You're continuing to reach into our respective communities and make a difference. Uh, what What's on the horizon for you? The legislative session is over. What should we expect your focus will be? Certainly this lawsuit. But in the days ahead, what, we should, what should we look for from Oregon Right to Life? Well, I just want to say that we're extremely grateful uh, for all of the support that we receive. Our organization is fully and completely supported by our faithful donors. And um, that just is we're incredibly grateful and, and we work very hard to make sure that we are doing the best that we can with the resources that we have. Um, and uh, we actually do have a, a fundraiser coming up on September 16th. Pam Tebow is our keynote speaker, and we still do have some seats available if people are interested in attending. Um, that information is on our on our website. 
and um, the event is called the Night for Advocacy. And then we also have um, our March for Life, which we're making some big changes to. There's some big changes, of course, with Roe v. Wade being overturned and the Dobbs decision. So we are um, moving our Oregon March for Life to February 8th, which is a weekday, and it's during the first week of the legislative session. And so uh, we are following the model that's being adopted around the country that um, now that that uh, abortion limits can be considered uh, at the state legislative level without um, the context of Roe v. Wade that we want to be sure that we're offering opportunities for pro-lifers to interact and um, uh, be a voice uh, in reality at the legislative session. So there'll be more information coming on that, but I wanted to let people know that it's a, it's a big change. And, yeah. and we know that not everybody appreciates big change, but we think it's important to make that adjustment. Well, it's important that it's relevant change. It's not change for change sake. It's a relevant right. change and meaningful. <laughs> well, Lois, I appreciate the work of Oregon Right to Life. I appreciate your leadership, and we'll certainly continue to follow this legal case, but uh, other issues as well. And I, again, want to remind our listeners that your event coming up on the 16th, you can go to the website for more information. It's going to be a, a great opportunity to support the work and to find some encouragement as you sit in a room with a bunch of pro-life people. There's nothing better than that. So. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thank you so much, Lois. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Again, Lois Anderson is Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, well, maybe not remind you, tell you for the first time that Alex McFarland will be a guest on the program tomorrow. We're going to talk about the crime of misgendering. And then on Thursday, Patty Garibay will be my guest. She's with American Heritage Girls. We're going to talk about navigating going back to school, particularly the challenges that uh, that girls face. So that's coming up on Thursday's program as well. Well, it was just a matter of time before choice became mandatory. A federal judge recently denied a request by parents of students in the Washington, D.C. suburb of Montgomery County, Maryland, to be able to remove their children from classrooms when books containing LGBTQ characters are read out loud. Parents didn't want their child to be exposed to those stories. Well, Christian and Muslim parents had sued the school system. They claimed such books forced religious parents to either abandon what they believe their faith teaches or leave the public school system. Well, this is indoctrination, and the judge's ruling violates the First Amendment's free exercise clause, which protects citizens' right to practice their religion as they please, so long as the practice does not run afoul of a public morals or a compelling government interest. Well, it took Judge Deborah Boardman 60 pages to try to make her case. She claimed parents failed to demonstrate how the no-opt-out policy would result in the indoctrination of their children or otherwise coerce their children to violate or change their religious beliefs. She apparently lives in a cave. With or without an opt-out right, she ruled, the parents remain free to pursue their sacred obligations to instruct their children in their faiths. Even if their children's exposure to religiously offensive ideas make the parents' efforts less likely to succeed, that does not amount to a government-imposed burden on their belief, their religious exercise. Wow. So I wonder if we can apply that to Bible studies in the classroom. It may violate the secular parents' uh, worldview, uh, and it may make it more difficult for them to uh, teach their um, secular views in the household. But, you know, it's, um, it's something that the government uh, believes is necessary. 
Well, public schools have children for most of the day, five days a week, nine months out of the year. Religious parents have them at night and on weekends and during the summer months. Maybe they take them for worship and religious instruction one or two hours during the week. Well, based on time alone, who has the greater advantage to influence young minds, parents or public schools? We're talking about parents being denied the right to opt out of what they consider offensive teaching or indoctrination. A teacher's authority, along with peer pressure to conform, can undermine a parent's religious beliefs and those of their children. So why doesn't this argument work in reverse? Why can't religious values be taught in public schools so that secular progressives will know something about them? Well, according to the reasoning of Judge Boardman, a child with atheist parents or parents of a different faith should not expect their child's beliefs or theirs to be undermined by exposure to teacher teachings rather contained in holy books. Well, from sexual subjects to climate change, the state is force-feeding kids to comply with a secular worldview instead of focusing on subjects that will prepare them to compete with China and other nations that are ahead of us in critical subjects. Reading, science, math. Remember those? Well, one graduate of the Montgomery County School System uh, said that to the likely shame of those currently running it, My classmates and I were taught classic subjects and received what was considered a good education. It was the same with the university, uh, which uh, has also been taken over by woke teaching. The costs associated with education have gone up while the quality has declined. Well, many of us have personal stories. Some years ago, a Republican congresswoman, Comney Morella, at a social function was met by this graduate of the Montgomery County school system. She said that since I appeared to be one of the more famous graduates from my high school, I ought to be a commencement speaker. I told her that given my conservative politics and Christian faith, there was no way I would be invited to speak. She disagreed and said she would recommend uh, this uh, graduate as a speaker. The speaker or the individual jokingly said that if they did invite me, I would pay her mortgage for a year. Well, sometime later, she ran into that lawmaker again and she sheepishly said You were right. They weren't interested in you. Well, the option given by Judge Boardman to religious parents that they can pull their kids out of public schools ought to be accepted. The parents should then campaign for their tax dollars to follow their children to the private school of their choice. Now, at the same time that we're being told that children should be subjected to indoctrination, we're also being told that school choice is not an option that they would support. So indoctrination does not seem to me to be uh, too aggressive a term to describe what's being um, foisted on these families. Well, in other news, a criminologist recently unearthed a video of a multi-billion dollar transnational criminal organization that's been stealing from the U.S. government since the pandemic and selling generative artificial intelligence tools to other criminals. Well, the 58-second clip, which you can find online, I've seen it, it's rather chilling, was meant for the dark web. It opens with a person who goes by Sanchez, covered um, head to toe in black clothing and speaking behind a black skeleton mask with someone else who appears to be digging a grave behind him, says, yes, I sell Chase bank accounts. Yes, I am one of the first people to sell fake bank accounts four years ago. The man who calls himself Sanchez goes on. We've started with my partner four years ago. Now we are about 30 people in one office, end quote. 
As he speaks, the camera shifts from a face-to-face point of view with Sanchez to one looking up from what appears to be a hole with ominous music in the background. The video was uncovered by David Maiman, a criminologist and professor at Georgia State University, who provided context to the video in a LinkedIn post. This was an update to uh, some of his uh, concerned customers who haven't seen him on the online underground market for a few weeks, Maiman said. Well, these groups are behind most of the pandemic fraud that cost the country billions and are now using generative artificial intelligence to remain hidden while expanding their criminal empire. Uh, the CEO of Lexus Nexus Risk Solutions government group uh, is saying, when you think of pandemic fraud and modern day cyber criminal fraud targeting the government, you usually think of a low level fraudster acting alone. Well, that could not be farther from the truth. He used the example of someone submitting a dozen unemployment applications with stolen identities during the pandemic. In reality, those who commit government fraud and get caught are the tip of the iceberg. They're like the street level drug dealer who gets arrested. There are a whole there's a whole machine behind them that at this point closely resembles the 20th century Italian mob or modern day drug cartels. On the dark web, there is a fraud as a service industry run by international cyber gangs from all over the world, including Russia, Nigeria and China, among dozens of others. The one depicted in the video I referenced is called Mega Darknet Market, which um, he said is one of the biggest enterprises in the world. Well, the video gave the first glimpse into how these organizations sell mule accounts which is a bank account set up with stolen identity as well as generative artificial intelligence and deep fake tools to other criminals. The video is proof of what's been uh, warned all along, that there are some very organized institutions empowering low-level fraudsters from all over the world. And as of yet, there's not a way to address them effectively. We'll keep you uh, keep you posted. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.